Welcome to a special holiday edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemeck, uh, back from the wilderness. Uh, it's been a really weird year, but we want to end the year right, and that's by paying tribute to the greatest tennis players of all time. And this episode focuses on Novak Djokovic and to help Sakib Ali and myself unpack this shimmering, glowing, gleaming career which is still rising, still has many chapters left to be written. Uh, we welcome back to the podcast, Sasha Osmo, uh, who is a journalist for Sports Club, the website in Serbia. You can follow Sports Club on Twitter, Sport K-L-U-B. Uh, and Sasha does a tremendous job reporting on Djokovic, Serbian tennis, also basketball. You know, he's covering Nikola Jokic with the Denver Nuggets of the NBA, and we have basketball season just about to return. So Sasha wears many different hats, but he does a great job covering any sport that he uh, tweets on and reports on. Uh, we're, we're really thrilled to have him back on the podcast to pay tribute to Novak Djokovic. Sasha, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thank you, Matt, and thank you guys for having me, and uh, thank you for this amazing introduction. All right, Sakib, let's start our conversation. Sure, I mean, uh, this introduction is well-deserved because, you know, you do enjoy uh, uh, a fan club on Twitter for your reporting. And, you know, reporting is something that we marvel. Uh, it has gone in many different directions. But, yeah, you do a very good job. Uh, I enjoy, you know, your tweets and your reports. So, Novak Djokovic, a true global superstar. Uh, my first question is, what is your first memory of Djokovic personally and professionally? I remember seeing him in his first match against Marat Safin in 2005 Australian Open. They both were wearing similar kits. I didn't know anything about Djokovic then, but I remember the match was pretty straightforward for Safin, but the match had a lot of long rallies. So, you know, the kid could play even then. So unpack your memories and share with the listenership here. Yes, actually, I can't recall the first match I watched him play live. I know I've read about him in, uh, in some of the Serbian newspapers, but my first vivid memory of uh, me losing my calm demeanor over a tennis match is watching the live score of his match at Wimbledon in 2005 against Guillermo Garcia Lopez. It was played on some court, I don't know, number 250, and there was, of course, no, 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 no cameras there. So I was following it on the Wimbledon live score, and I think he saved three match points and won that match. Of course, I watched him play before that, but when, uh, when someone asks me this kind of questions, this kind of question, this is the first that usually, that usually comes to mind, that, that match against Guillermo Garcia Lopez, where he saved uh, a few match points. I think it was four in all, but don't hold me to, to my word here. And that was... Uh, in a way, a sign of things to come because, as we know, he would win many matches and many important matches by saving match points and winning. Absolutely. So, yeah, we can, you know, this conversation can go in so many ways because uh, Djokovic has had such a stellar career and is still going and, you know, the record books uh, have been, you know, getting altered because, you know, he keeps finding a new record and uh, you just said it. Uh, so, again, the extension of a question before Matt comes in. So, what was that moment professionally when you knew this guy is going to be unstoppable? Again, I'll also share my moment. I mean, there are a lot of moments here. I know it's your show as an analyst uh, here, but 
he's beaten Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal a lot of times in 2011. But something happened in 2012 Roland Garros when he beat Seppi and Songa back-to-back. And like I said, he was going to win many matches like that. So that's my moment. But again, what is your moment when you realize this guy is going to be really someone special? Uh, the first time I, I, I really and honestly believed that he could be uh, at this kind of level, living, winning multiple slams, I didn't think it was going to be 17, to be honest, and counting. But the first, that kind of moment for me was Montreal in 2007 when he, when he had beaten uh, number three, number two, and number one in consecutive matches. I think it was Roderick Nadal and Federer in the finals. And uh, usually there's a, sometimes a, a young player beats better players on, in some tournaments that are maybe not so relevant or, or, or the better or the high-ranked players are injured or something like that. But then it, it gets forgotten that, uh, that it was that kind of situation. But with this in Montreal, I remember all three of them, Rodik, Nadal and Federer, playing extremely good and Novak winning th- those matches. And uh, that, is, uh, that is what made me think that he could... Uh, I honestly believe that he could win the US Open uh, right away. In, uh, in three weeks' time, he, wo- he, w- he was close. He came to the finals and I think he, was, he had set points in the uh, first two sets against Federer before losing th- three sets to Love. But yes, that Montreal tournament was, uh, was the first time that I realized that he could be great and that he probably will be great. Sasha, I think in, you know, going back into the earlier portions of uh, Novak's career, one of, one of the more interesting aspects of it is you know, the gluten uh, factor, the gluten allergy, and you know, being able to improve nutrition. Uh, I think for, for at least some fans, not, not all, maybe not even most, but certainly for some fans, there is a perception that, oh, he unlocked the gluten problem and then everything was good. It's obviously not that simple. You know, what, what do you think in your mind, being able to cover him up close, what was the interplay, you know, the interconnection between the nutrition, the match psychology aspects of his game and figuring out in that time period uh, how to be an ultimate champion? Oof, there, is a, there are a lot of aspects to this question question but now that you mentioned nutrition I would just like to say that uh, in my opinion one of the one of the biggest legacies that Novak is going to leave to tennis apart from him winning all the big titles and everything that everyone talks about is the is the way that uh, tennis players go about things and I think nutrition and professionalism are are aspects of Novak's game and personality that many of the young players are looking up to and I think that that is going to be one of the one of the greater things that people like us that love tennis and follow tennis will remember about him and let's say in 10 or 20 years time we'll see someone working as hard or be as dedicated as Novak and we're going to say oh you remember when Djokovic did that back in the day so that's that's the first thing I wanted to say and uh uh, of course, it is not. It is not that simple. So he quit eating gluten, started winning. But I, di- I do think that it had a, it had a great impact on him. Uh, at that time, in 2011, he was working with Dr. Igor Chetovic, and uh, I think uh, working with him was a kind of a beginning uh, 
of this new lifestyle that we're seeing Djokovic living now and living in the past, let's say, seven to ten years. I've had uh, several chances to speak to Dr. Chetovic. He's an extremely uh, charismatic guy, outgoing guy, funny guy. He's really fun to be, really fun to be around. And he, he did, uh, he contributed not just in uh, noticing that uh, Djokovic had gluten problems, but I think he helped him with the mental aspect of his game as well. And then, you know what they say, uh, you're not breaking the rock with the, with, the last, with the last kick to it or help me with the word here, guys. You know what I want to say. Like the last blow. It's about the repetitive blow, blows. Blow. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. So you're not, uh, you're not breaking the rock with the last blow, but all of the thousands that came before that last blow. And I think that, uh, that's, uh, that was uh, sort of uh, inside of him already. Because if you do remember, he won his first slam in 2008. And there was a, there was a gap, let's say, for three years where he was losing to Federer and Nadal in the, in the biggest matches. And then the key thing, except for the, for the gluten diet and the working with uh, Dr. Chetovic and all of it coming together, I think was mentally was very important to him. For him was the Davis Cup win in 2010 because, I mean, we've seen how much it means for him to play for his country. We've seen the tears after, after losing to Del Potro in Rio. We've seen how much he fought. I mean, over the years, he played a lot of times injured uh, the Davis Cup. So him winning in 2010 was something that gave him extra boost going into into 2011. And with everything he's put up, the work the work he's put in before that, it all just came to fruition. And he had, I mean, one of the one of the best seasons in history. And from that point on, I think this was that was this is his decade that just ended. So, Sasha, um, you know, that the 2010 U.S. Open preceded that Davis Cup by just a few months, um, you know, and there was the first round escape against Victor Troike. He was down two sets to one. And, you know, that was the uh, sleeping with his girlfriend match uh, when uh, he, you know, the, the, the match was the fourth set was played in shade late in the afternoon in New York and that shade relief helped him and he got through that match. And then of course the first of the three matches in which he saved uh, two match points against Federer in a major semifinal or final, that 2010 semifinal. And then he played, you know, an informed Nadal. Nadal, one could say Nadal was playing as well as he's ever played at that 2010 U.S. Open. And Djokovic took a set off him and it was a competitive four set match. How much did that 2010 U.S. Open feed into Davis Cup and set the stage for not just 2011, but the decade of dominance which followed? Uh, actually, I'm really glad that you've mentioned that. Right after that tournament, I've written an article saying something similar to, to what you just said, because it, it was, the, it was I, Novak lost to Feather in 2007, and then... Uh, in 2008 and in 2009, it was kind of close, but it was never really close, if, if we're being honest. And then in 2010, uh, he was playing better, but he wasn't able to, to, you know, to just make a big shot at the right moment. And then uh, 
when he was with his back against the wall, I remember him saying that he just closed his eyes and uh, played those forehands with a with all power that he could uh, he could master at that point. So he was uh, a bit lucky, but you need to be brave to 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 be to earn that luck. And I think that uh, of course I completely agree with you as as I've written uh, ten years ago that that win against Federer was uh, was a huge uh, huge factor contributing to his big 2011. And that finals with with Rafa. Uh, in my opinion, there weren't many instances in Rafa's career that he served better than at that U.S. Open in 2010. Uh, so there was there was really not much Nova could do. I remember him having some half chances at the beginning of the third set, but Nadal was just playing so well. So that is why I think that defeat didn't uh, didn't make Novak lose a lot of uh, self confidence. And all in all, yes, that U.S. Open 2010 was very, very important. Sure. No, I mean, uh, Matt and I, I guess we didn't prepare that much, but, you know, we had our own questions and I was going to ask this question. So that just shows, our, you know, our thinking is, you know, a lot of time in the same lines. So let me talk about his impact on Serbian tennis. He's a truly global superstar and has tennis fans all over the planet following him. But what has, has been impact in Serbia in terms of bringing tennis, say, up to par with soccer or basketball? I can only think of three players who may have done that. Borg in Sweden, Nishikori in Japan, and Becker in Germany. Maybe Federer in Switzerland, but Hingis was there before Federer. So how has Djokovic's uh, rise in popularity brought tennis up to speed with major sports in Serbia? Oh, it's huge. It's, it's huge. I mean, there is... Only one piece of data that I can give you. I mean, after he won Wimbledon in 2011 in Belgrade, there were uh, 100,000 people in one of the main squares in Belgrade just celebrating that title with him. I think that that says it enough. But uh, uh, going back to your question, I think, yes, of course, Novak is, uh, Novak is followed. But what uh, personally gives me satisfaction and joy is that people are watching tennis more and more. And not only when Novak is playing, but watching other matches as well and uh, getting to know the finesse of the game and everything. I work for Sport Club. I work mainly for a website, but we are television as well. And we broadcast Wimbledon and all of the Masters and uh, 500s, a lot of WTA tournaments as well. And I know how much is tennis being watched and sought at, uh, at, at this point in Serbia. Then that's, That is what makes me happy. Of course, we are after Novak retires. I suppose there's going to be some uh, some downfall, but I do I do expect it to. I do expect that interest for tennis holds a certain level that uh, a level that uh, a level of interest that never existed before Novak. Sure. So my follow-up uh, question is again on the impact on tennis media in Serbia, because I met a journalist from Japan in 2017 Miami Open. And in the conversation, she told me with the rise of Kei Nishikori, this became a full-time job, not only for her, but there were like 15 to 20 journalists who were traveling all over the world to follow Nishikori. And of course, Osaka was coming up. So how has that been the impact in the tennis media in Serbia with the rise of Djokovic? Of course, there was Ivanovic. She also came at the same time and Jankovic, but it's truly been Djokovic. Yes, and, and, and Tipsarovic uh, before that and Zimic. Uh, I think, guys, you can't really compare the, 
the situation of Japan and Serbia in terms of economy. So, I mean, my first uh, trip to a Grand Slam tournament was uh, at Roland Garros 2015. I mean, that's, uh, that's four years after Novak first became number one in the world. And as you mentioned, uh, Serbia had Grand Slam champions and world number ones before that with in, uh, Jelena and Anna and uh, Zimonic in doubles. So, uh, it, it, it's not like, uh, I mean, Japan can obviously afford to send... 20 journalists, but it's a, it's a bit of a bigger fight here in Serbia. In order for us to do that, I can I could tell you a, a lot of stories from I don't know five or six years ago and uh, how much uh, effort we had to we had to put in. And I think that uh, that is something that uh, our players appreciate when uh, when when speaking to us. But uh, going back to your question, yes, there is a lot of. Not, not maybe in terms of traveling, but a lot of more cav- coverage of tennis in um, in the in the sports media, not just in the in the sports media, but on, on other websites as well that have sports just uh, just as one of the separate sections. So, yes, right now it's football, basketball, and and tennis. You know, usually you know on the websites you have that section other sports. Uh, mm-hmm. Earlier, you had tennis in other sports, and now tennis is up front. So I think that's that's uh, the that's the biggest uh, that's the biggest change. Sasha, so you know, in, in looking at Djokovic's career, you know, there were two pronounced multi-year lulls uh, between periods of of success. And as as his career uh, moved along, dominance—not just success, but dominance. So we've talked about one of those lulls, the period after his 2008 Australian Open title, and then you know he he emerged from that in late 2010, found the big success in 2011, and then you know there was a, a lesser lull, but still a lull in 2012, 2013, early 2014, when you know he was making major finals. So it wasn't really like 2009 early 2010 when he wasn't even getting to major finals. Um, but it was still, you know, a drop from his 2011 standard. And it, it was a lot like Yvonne Lendl, uh, who lost a, a bunch of major finals. We, a lot of us who wrote about tennis, followed tennis in late 2013, early 2014, you know, we were noting the comparisons between Djokovic and Lendl uh, you know, and Lendl had a very good career, but his, that eight and eleven record in major finals is uh, you know something that really changed the way he is remembered. And so, you know, so jo- Djokovic went through you know these periods of struggle, and he found a way to come out of them. What what was the what were some of the qualities Djokovic displayed, or perhaps were there certain underappreciated behind the scenes moments? from those periods of time, you know, like, I mean, we've talked a little bit about 2010. Was there an, an event or a moment in like late 2013 or at some point during 2014 when Djokovic gained a new level of understanding that enabled him to build back his career to the very highest level and reach, you know, these stratospheric heights that he has attained in tennis? Okay. Uh, I think, uh, Yes, I agree that was a lull, but uh, during during that period he still won two Australian Opens in 2012 and 2013. 
And as you said, he's played a lot of major finals. But I think the, you know, big stars and uh, big-time players, they can often be stubborn. And uh, I think Djokovic's willingness and eagerness to listen and to improve every single day, I, I know that this sounds like a phrase, but uh, he really thinks it and he really lives it. And I think he's proven that by, by trying, uh, you know, when you set his standards are so high. I mean, most of the players after having a season like, I mean, he ended 2012 uh, like number one player in the world in 2013. He had that match against Rafael Roland Garros when, uh, when he touched that net and he was so close to winning, maybe the closest he's ever been to winning against Rafa in Paris, except for that 2015 when he won. He still won in Australia. He made it to the finals at Wimbledon. And uh, and uh, at Australia at the U.S. Open, remind me what happened. 2013, he lost finals to to Nadal. That was playing again. He was playing again extremely well, and in the third set, it really went down to the wire. So Novak's level was already there. He was playing great tennis, and uh, that's when uh, that's when Boris Becker came in. It was a bit of a surprise for all of us, but uh, at the end of 2013, uh, Novak. I, I remember that uh, that PR statement uh, from from his agency, and one of the quotes from Novak was that he feels that Boris, as a former superstar, can bring him that to one or two percent of mental fortitude and mental stability in the key moments that could that could propel him to to the heights he's already won. And uh, with Becker, he did just that. They clicked. Uh, they clicked in Rome. And uh, although Novak lost to Rafa in Paris, uh, he won Wimbledon by beating Federer. And in my opinion, that is uh, maybe the most important match of his career, of his career as we know it today. Because uh, I I noticed that that match is not uh, as talked about as some of the big other matches Novak has had. But in my opinion, that was the most important win, as I said, of his career. Because he wasted 5-2 in the fourth set being uh, two sets to one up. And considering what has been going through his mind past three years, you know, losing most of the, most of the biggest matches, if, had he lost that, I mean, that could have been a, a really, really serious blow. But he managed somehow to regroup and to win it in five. And from that point on, that was the same... Like U.S. Open 2010 was sort of a preparation for the big 2011. I th- for me, that's the Wimbledon 2014 for the huge 2015 because that uh, that was the summer he got married. And personally, I think that he didn't uh, approach the U.S. Open as well as he should have, and he was uh, he was very aware of that. And then at the beginning of 2015, everything clicked again with his game and with his mentality. And he was a, he was a machine again. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd like to come in and you covered uh, a good portion on the Boris Becker partnership. So I'll just say something still elaborate on that by saying uh, you've covered the man professionally, you know him in a professional capacity than mo- most of us would never do. I mean, we don't even travel me and Matt, but other journalists as well. So when you look back at his great achievements, you know, he evolved over the years, making choices. And even his two other big rivals, they've all had different coaches, different voices. So how do you look back at the evolution of Djokovic with voices that, you know, were introduced like Becker and then the Agassi assignment? Just look back at that, you know, three, four year period 
and how you remember the growth of Novak Djokovic into the man and champion he is today? I mean, there was a, there was one constant present except for that small part that was less than a year, and that is Marian Vaida. And I, I feel that uh, that consistency, not just on the on the tennis court and on the practice court, but consistency in the people you surround yourself with is a, is a huge part of uh, of Novak's success. And Marian Vaida has been with him with throughout all of his career almost. So for me, for me, that is one uh, that is one of the of the crucial of the crucial elements to to his uh, let's say growth. But uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not really sure what are you getting yet. I mean, he's uh, he's obviously he's been a uh, he's never changed uh, that much uh, as a person. I feel you know in uh, in contact with the media. My first interview one-on-one with him a, a bit bigger interview was in Paris in in 2015 and uh, he he's always had this uh, actually at the beginning of his career I feel I felt that uh, his answers were a bit more let's say honest and uh, outgoing he wasn't afraid to say anything and then as he became number one and uh, people were starting to pay attention more to him, he became sort of a bit more diplomatic. But uh, as his career near the end, he's again not afraid to say what he really thinks, as we, as we witnessed yeah. this year in particularly. So is, no, it, I is, think, that, uh, is that... No, I think uh, my bad. I apologize if I wasn't really clear. I think Djokovic is, like you said, has been very candid and open in the press and you know he lets people know how he's feeling. So when I said about growth, uh, you know, the because to me, him and Becker, that was a perfect marriage. But we don't know. Like, you know, like they ended their partnership. I thought that partnership was going to go on for years. But then the assignment of Agassi and bringing back a Vaira, that shows like a man who's growing into his own. And a lot of these superstars do it in public eyes. That's what I meant. That, you know, oh. he made certain decisions and it just, you know, made him, you know, a better champion, you know, overall. So that's the kind of question I had in mind. And you answer yeah, to some To be of honest... It. To be honest, uh, I feel a lot of it is timing. Uh, I, if we are being completely honest, I didn't necessarily think that Becker and Novak would be a would be a great match. But for me, with Agassi, I, I thought that was a, that was a winning combination because of the of the similar mentalities and the similar things they had to they had to go through. And they're both based on what I've read and seen from Agassi. They they're both very sensitive and I feel that partnership could have worked really well had Novak had a lot of problems with his elbow and uh, consequently with uh, with his head obviously when when you're not playing it 100% then everything uh, everything gets worse so I feel that partnership with Agassi could have worked pretty well but but then again it was it was uh, it was why does it was why does job to to let's say resurrect him because at one point uh, at one point, not many of uh, not many of the pundits and uh, and the journalists really thought that Novak was going to make it back, especially in the in the early 2018 after those losses to Taro Daniel and Pear. I mean, he did look extremely bad, but then just uh, just like three months later on, he won Wimbledon. So yes. Sasha, um, you know, one there are some overlooked figures in. Djokovic's career, and they weren't around him very long. I'm thinking, for example, of Todd Martin. 
other people who, you know, came in for a little bit of time. Who are, who are some of the under underappreciated or overlooked figures who, you know, they weren't associated with perhaps, you know, his greatest memories or moments, but they did things behind the scenes to help Vida and help the other people who are close to Djokovic's inner circle make tweaks in his game or give him elements of understanding that improved his journey. I mean, we've mentioned Igor Tretovic, of course. The first name I would mention here is Milan Amanovic. That is his, uh, his physio and one of, the, one of his best friends. I mean, he's been with him throughout his life and throughout his career. So that's, that's obviously the first, first name. As, as, as far as Todd Martin goes, I don't think... I mean, I love Todd and love speaking to him. I had a chance to speak, him a few, speak to him a few times. But in terms of his uh, contribution to Novak's game, I don't think it was, I don't think it was that big. Uh, I, in 2010, after switching rackets and working with Todd, Noah had a lot of problems with, uh, with his serve and uh, made a lot of double faults, though I don't necessarily think that he has helped him. There were a lot of, uh, there were a few, let's say, tries like that. There was Wojtek feedback for a brief period of, of time, but I don't really think that, uh, uh, that these people that, let's say, came and go had uh, such a major influence. And I think the key, as I mentioned, was, uh, was the consistency within his team. He's worked with, uh, Vaiden Milan his whole life and let's say when someone uh, when someone tries to become a part of Novak senior circle there are a lot of tests not just like professional but personal as well and uh, uh, it's hard to get in but once you get in it's uh, it's even harder to get out I think that's uh, that's the case with Marian and that's the case with uh, Milan and Gebhard Fielgrich, of course. We should not uh, forget him. He was there for a very, very long time. And I feel that he, he would still be there hadn't he decided to, to pursue some other things in his life. So I think that uh, for Novak, and I think the same, is, same goes for Rafa, it's important to surround themselves with, uh, with people they're familiar with and they're comfortable spending time not only on the tennis court, but outside of it as well. And as I said, I feel that was one of the, one of the biggest factors in, in his success. Sasha, um, one of the most contentious debates uh, about Djokovic's career on Twitter, social media, is the debate about whether the 2011 season or the 2015 season was, was a better season. Now, of course, everyone's going to have a different opinion or definition of what better means. And so I'm sure this is a recurring uh, discussion. Whenever you talk tennis, either with your fellow journalists or, or with fans, you know, which, which, which was the better season? And I guess it, you know, it invites the question of, you know, what's your definition of a great season? Uh, and, and how has this discussion evolved perhaps over the past few years, now that you have more time to reflect and look back on each of those two seasons and appreciation, appreciate them for what they are? Uh, for me, there is really no dilemma. If we're, if we're going to look at it objectively, 2015 was, uh, was a better year. I mean, he played finals in, I think, 15 out of the 16 tournaments he's played in. He didn't play in Doha, losing quarterfinals to Karlovic. I think 
he's won three slams. I mean, he did so. But the, for his fans, I think maybe they're a bit more emotionally attached to that 2011 because at that time it felt surreal. You know, he, he won like, what, 40, 43 matches in a row. And I remember in Indian Wells and in Miami that year, it wasn't a question of whether he's going to win, just how many games he's going to lose per set. There was a lot of six love, six one games. But, uh, and, it, and it was incredible. I mean, it still is one of the, one of the most, uh, one of the greatest season in, seasons in history of tennis. But after, after winning US Open, he had that uh, injury. I think, I think it was rib injury if I'm not mistaken. So for the rest of the season, he wasn't, he wasn't playing as well and he was losing. But in 2015, he was just like this steamroller that from the first point of the year to the last point of the year, he was by far the best player. And for me, that season cannot be compared to anything, especially considering what came after that. And that is perhaps his career-defining success winning uh, Australian Open and Roland Garros holding all four majors at the same time. That, in my mind, is inseparable to that 2015. And that's comparing those two years, I would always go with uh, 2015. So as, as someone who is a professional uh, journalist and covers tennis, do you feel the treatment of Djokovic or the relationship he has with a certain uh, international press, uh, is it... Is the treatment a little bit unfair? I mean, do you feel that when you cover and how he's projected and how the relationship has been over the years? I get, uh, I get asked this a lot. I've just had a, an interview with a Swiss colleague of mine and I have given him uh, this example that I feel is illustrative and I'm going to give it again. In the last year's uh, Roland Garros, uh, when... Uh, Federer was playing Nadal, and Nadal hit this, uh, had a lucky, lucky net court. Federer just uh, just taken the ball and threw it out of the stadium, full power. There were and people in the stands were like their heads going all over the place, and no one's mentioned it. For me personally, from a journalist point of view, I don't think it is worth mentioning. But at the same time, I wondered had Novak done something like that, I'm absolutely sure there was, there, was, there was going to be at least one question about that in the presser. So sometimes, yes, I do feel he's being treated unfairly. And sometimes I feel, of course, he's made his fair share of mistakes like, like any of them and like any of us. But uh, for me, the, the good deeds that he had done uh, by, by far exceed the bad things he's said or done. And uh, I, I don't want to say everywhere, but in some parts, some parts of the media, those bad things are always talked about and, uh, and the, good, the good things are not mentioned enough. I don't know if I've explained myself or, or do... No, do I, think, I, think, I think we are on the same page on this. And that's why I even took the liberty of asking uh, you know, that question. So let me go back to the court now. And earlier in the podcast, I mentioned the Songa and Seppi matches and some of the listeners might be confused why I put those matches when he had already been number one and beaten Federer and Nadal numerous times. So this is again to one of his most clutch performances. Those two matches, the, the Djokovic, you know, tennis ball striking, especially towards the end against both Seppi and Songa was just, it, 
ridiculous. It was insane. To me, that just told me that this guy is going to be so tough to beat when chips are down. And of course, he's made a career out of those kind of matches. So as someone who's covered you know, him professionally and watched so many of his matches, what are some of those matches to you that, uh, you know, I'm sure he's, you know, your job is not to be amazed, you're a reporter, but what are some of those matches that even you said, okay, I didn't see this coming? To be honest, I didn't see him coming. Uh, uh, he looked so distraught in the third set against team this year in the finals of uh, an Australian Open. I really, didn't, I really thought that, uh, that he was going to lose at some point. But I mean, that's just the thing about Djokovic. We've all thought a bunch of times, oh, okay, here it is. He, there's no way he's getting out of this. And then he somehow gets out of it. So, but I know, I know what kind of matches do you want me to remember. That Seppi and Songa, uh, that is a very good example. But I'm having trouble remembering some some of those at this point. So maybe later on, I can uh, I'll try and think with the back of my mind as we speak and get get back to it if that's fine. Sure, Matt, over to you. So let's go through another period of struggle and searching. And, and it's, you know, I, I mentioned these periods because it's so impressive that Djokovic found a way out of these periods each time. And so this period of struggle was, of course, the injury period in 2017. And that was, you know, the year which, you know, Federer was able to take advantage of Djokovic's injuries and, and win uh, a couple majors. You know, when, when he was going through this time, what I mean, obviously, he had a lot of past experiences to to rely on and look back at, and he already knew he could come back. But it was a fresh period of struggle, uh, and certainly the Chequenado loss at, at Roland Garros was very surprising, even with Djokovic, you know, in, in uh, well short of 100% fitness. Uh, it was still, you know, the kind of match where you expect a player of Djokovic's caliber to find a way to come through that. What, what did Djokovic learn about himself in that period? And was there a specific moment either on the court or off the court, which helped him to once again build back and to, you know, to beat Nadal in that 2018 Wimbledon semifinal, which was really the, 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 the true emergence of yet another comeback in his career? Uh, I, I think that after winning in Paris in 2016, I mean, he said this numerous times, but that's how it felt to me the moment he's won it and the moment I saw him at Wimbledon practicing two years after, like he had, uh, he had nothing left at that point. So he, he was going and uh, searching for that Paris title so long that after finally, finally conquering that... Uh, Mount Everest of tennis, he was like totally exhausted, mentally, physically, you name it. And I think that's when the when he's allowed his body to feel something. And uh, I think he's uh, uh, he he usually says that he wouldn't change a thing in the past and that uh, everything happens for a reason. But I think if he could uh, take one thing back, I, I think he would um, he would he would take a break sooner than he did. Uh, he retired against Berdy in the quarters of Wimbledon in 2000 of the, 2017 and took the rest of the year off. But his elbow problems were were going uh, were dating a lot a lot back. Uh, he he had trouble at the U.S. Open 2016 as well. I mean, he did make it to the finals 
but I can't remember him having more favorable path to the finals with the injuries of opponents and everything. Uh, so he did make finals even in that in, in that shape. But my feel is that he should have taken that uh, break earlier, and of course uh, uh, maybe go to to fix that elbow surgically even sooner. He did that at the start of uh, 2018. And by that time, a lot of his confidence was uh, was gone. That's what we have seen in India Wells and in uh, and in uh, and in Miami. And I think uh, the beginning of his comeback was actually at Rome. And that that is why I feel he was he was so pissed off after losing to Cecchinato because he was feeling that he was feeling the confidence growing back. And then he lost that kind of match. He should have won. With his eyes closed, to be honest, I mean, uh, he wa- his level wasn't that bad, and I I really feel that he could uh, he could play with the with team in the semifinals, not necessarily win, but uh, but to but to play and possibly win. So that's what made him so furious, and I can't remember uh, ever seeing him seeing him more furious than that. I mean, he lost to Wawrinka in that 2015. Finals, and that was a devastating loss to him, and, sti- and he still had the time to, to I don't know, take photos with the with the ball kids and to be, uh, to to give good answers in the in the press conference. But this was this was completely out of character. He was just there for two and a half minutes, ga- giving one word answers and just storming out of there. Uh, so at that point, I think he, that he even said, that, "I don't know if I'm going to play on grass courts." But obviously he he regrouped and uh, and uh, played the match of his life in uh, one of the matches of his life at, uh, against Nadal in 2018. I think that uh, he, during that whole during the whole course of that Wimbledon, people weren't uh, counting on him as much as they have in the past. And at that point, I think it uh, it suited him to be kind of an underdog, not the real underdog after everything he's won, but not to be so much in the public eye. Not that everyone expects, <coughs> sorry, not that everyone was expecting him to win. And I think that suited him, especially especially with the with that match uh, in that match against Nadal. I mean, it could have gone either way, but a lot of other matches could have as well. All right, so I, I can go for one more round, I guess. There's so many questions, you know, but it's hard to come with an original question about these guys because they have been covered so extensively by everyone. So as uh, someone who's written about him, uh, out of the three big rivalries with uh, Nadal, Federer, and Murray, uh, again, this is more like a personal one, which one has, uh, has more ups and downs or which one has been more fun to write about from a purely writer's point of view? I think with Federer, there's a special spice to it. Although although they always say there is, a, and I'm sure there is a lot of mutual respect. I, I've always felt that uh, with Federer, there was always a, something a bit more personal than, let's say, with Nadal, and especially not with uh, not with Murray. I don't know. I I don't have any, you know, facts to back this up. But it was just the feeling that I that I had watching them and. Uh, how they behave when they're playing each other and when they're playing someone else, also based on some of their quotes after and before the matches. So that was always a bit spicier for, for me. And uh, although, 
although I guess neither Novak nor Roger would ever confirm this, but I've always felt they've uh, uh, they've more they've cherished and be, been more happy winning against each other than let's say Nadal, and that's what that's what uh, made writing for me uh, the best about Djokovic Federer rivalry. Hi Matt, over to you. Uh, if you want to conclude this with a couple questions, or one uh, floor is yours. Yeah. Yeah, my, my last question, Sasha, and is about the future. Um, you know, what, uh, what are you most interested in over the next few years of Djokovic's career as he now begins that ascent into his mid-30s and eventually his late 30s? Um, you know, we've seen Federer uh, deal with, you know, life after 35 and Djokovic is soon in a few years going to deal with that challenge. Um, you know, we might have the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. I mean, that's not a guarantee, but it's possible. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, Djokovic really wants to track down that Olympic title. What are, what are some of the key questions or highlights that you're looking forward to uh, over these next few years as he hits the stretch run of his career? Uh, two things. Uh, firstly, what is his level of motivation going to be going forwards? Because, uh, well, uh, okay, last few tournaments, uh, before the tournament, it seemed like everything was fine. But then after the tournament, there is him saying that maybe he wasn't motivated enough or Marian saying that there was, there was maybe a lack of motivation after clinching the year number one. And I really don't know why that would be the case. And... Uh, personally, I feel that uh, the young generation is really coming up strong, and I feel that uh, uh, that uh, neither Novak nor uh, nor Rafa are again clear cut are ever again clear cut favorites in the big matches against these guys. On a, on a, on the whole season level, I still feel they're going to perform more consistently and getting to the final stages and winning more tournaments, we're, we're probably going to see Medvedev or Tsitsipas or any of these young guys losing a bit, uh, losing a few first or second rounds. But when it comes to big matches at the Masters and I feel at the Slams as well, they're going to have uh, Djokovic and Nadal harder and harder times. So I'm looking forward to see, to see how Novak is going to deal with all that. And, and I'm looking for some adjustments in his game. He's been talking about the importance of that, uh, of the second shot, the first after the serve for, a, for a quite some time. And I think in his bid to, to shorten points, he, he will put more emphasis on his serve. I think that's, uh, when, that is when Goran Ivanishevich comes into play. And I think that that is going to be the main focus for him. So those two things, how, how he is able to still motivate himself and how he's going to handle the bigger and bigger challenge of the of new generation i mean new generation of the of these challengers team Tsitsipas, uh, Zverev, Shapovalov, Medvedev and, and the rest of these guys because i i think i feel i feel and i felt this before the 2020 season it turned out the way it turned out because all of the because of all the circumstances but i felt that it could be one of the one of the best seasons in history on te of tennis, to be honest. And uh, if everything uh, uh, unfolds close to normal, I feel that 2021 could be could be that season because we're going to see uh, 
Grand Slam quarterfinals uh, in terms of quality could be like Grand Slam semifinals or finals just, uh, just a few years ago. As far as Tokyo Olympics go, I think that that is going to be one of the, one of the biggest motivations for Djokovic. He, he did play in Tokyo in 2019 and one of the biggest reasons, if not the only reason, was that he wanted to feel the courts and feel the atmosphere before the Olympics. And that, uh, that tells you a lot about his motivation and about, his, about how resolute he is to, to win another Olympic singles medal, preferably gold, of course. Well, Saja Osmo um, of Sports Club, you can follow him uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can follow Sports Club at SP, Sport K-L-U-B. And you can follow Sasha on Twitter at Osmo, O-Z-M-O underscore S-A-S-A. Sasha Osmo, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you for helping us to pay tribute to Novak Djokovic on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed myself. <laughs>